Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, uh, November the 23rd, 2023, Thanksgiving Day in the United States. On the West Coast, of course, there really are no holidays. Everything's still focused on big tech. Uh, and everyone remains obsessed with the Sam Altman open AI story still running on all the major newspapers. The Financial Times talks about how Silicon Valley reunited with Sam Altman and open AI. Um, the Wall Street Journal focuses on uh, what they call open AI's ineffective altruists versus Sam Altman, who Maybe many things, but he isn't ineffective. And a lot of people wondering, including the Wall Street Journal, uh, what happens next? Everyone is still, of course, trying to figure out the implications of AI on humanity. David Brooks is looking for the soul of AI. Of course, David Brooks in the New York Times is someone who looks for the soul of something everywhere he goes, on the bus, in planes, uh, when he's on the lavatory. So that's not very surprising. But we're all wondering what AI is going to do to our world. We're supposed to live in the age of AI. And next week, I'm actually going to Barcelona to, uh, to work at a, a very exciting event at the Santa Monica Center. It's a kind of museum workshop um, uh, right in the heart of uh, Barcelona. And next Friday, we are focusing on something called a creative manifesto for a critical AI future. One of the participants um, in this event is my guest today, an old friend, Professor Victor Meyer Schoenberger, who is a professor of internet governance and regulation at Oxford University. He's written many books. Um, many people will be most familiar with his book, Big Data. He's been on the show many times. He also has a new book on regulation coming out next year, and he's joining us from Kitzball or near Kitzball in Austria in the mountains. Victor, before we get to AI and creativity, what do you make of the drama in Silicon Valley? I'm sure like everybody else, you've been following it very closely, this fight between Sam Altman, it seems, and uh, the, the altruists, maybe effective or ineffective, depending how you look at them. How does this all look from Austria, from Europe, and particularly in the context of what you've uh, been writing and thinking about, particularly on internet regulation? Does it underline the fact that the big internet companies aren't very good at self-regulation? Well, I think there are so many layers here. Uh, one layer, of course, is the fact that uh, OpenAI was designed to be um, a nonprofit uh, organization, and its board, uh, interestingly enough, uh, its board members do not represent investors. They represent sort of the, the good of society, um, and that that creates a rather unique governance structure and may result in some um, unique uh, struggles uh, uh, within the organization um, should not be surprising. What what is quite surprising, actually, is um, that the story that this is between the altruists and sort of those that want to go full steam ahead on AI is a little false. Uh, the truth is that as far as I can tell from, from what I've read, 
uh, that the, the altruists within OpenAI were led and influenced by one of the co-founders, Ilya, um, who had this idea that if only OpenAI focused um, a significant amount of its resources over the next year or two on developing a technical fix for the fairness and responsibility problem of AI, they would have a technical solution to the fairness challenge. That to me is kind of preposterous, um, but it also reflects the, the, the belief system uh, of Silicon Valley technologists that if, if there is an ill in the world, uh, and even if that ill is human created, like unfairness or, or, uh, or immorality or uh, uh, irresponsibility, um, the, 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 the almost gut reaction is to develop technology to solve that problem. And, uh, and I think that would have been a gigantic mistake to have OpenAI go down that black hole. Uh, it might have annihilated the company or it might have led to a technology that might have um, started to undo the very humanness of our society. So you're suggesting that the so-called nonprofit people who wanted to fire Sam Altman, in many ways, they are unrealistic, utopian, absurd. No, I think AI needs regulation. But the problem is when you think about regulation and how to design it, you need to know what you're trying to achieve. What are you regulating against or what are you regulating in, in favor? What, what, what's your goal? Um, and uh, as, as we don't really know the goal well, regulation is going to be hard. Uh, when the first trains came around uh, some 200 years ago, one of the biggest concerns of the people were that uh, around uh, 20 miles an hour or so, or 30 miles an hour, the wind would be so strong that people would suffocate and would not be able to breathe. So that was the idea of regulation. You know, we need to regulate the speed so that people don't die on trains. Um, and that turned out not to be the biggest problem. Uh, one of the bigger problems turned out to be uh, steam vessels that exploded um, and, and, and caused significant injury. And we can laugh. I mean, I laughed, Victor, at that idea. But of course, it, it wasn't impossible to empirically test it until you had railway uh, engines going at 20 miles an hour to make sure that people didn't actually die when they were on board these trains. That's exactly right. And so I think that what we need in terms of AI regulation is regulation that is learning, regulation that is changing, is flexible enough to adapt to um, our growing knowledge of what the real threat is, rather than trying to regulate what we believe today is the threat, but what may turn out a year or two years or three years from hence uh, to be uh, not such a big deal after all. Victor, you, you've got a book, as I mentioned, coming out next spring. You'll be back on the show to talk about it. Guardrails, how to regulate technology. Who is best positioned to regulate this new technology of AI? Clearly, um, the idealists, the altruists, perhaps, in tech itself might be not as well suited as they might like to think. Is it government still? 
You know, um, I don't believe in self-regulation. Um, it's it, it, the incentives are just all wrong. Um, and, and we've seen it with Google, uh, uh, which uh, started off as an organization that was so adamantly focused on doing the right thing. Uh, but but then you know mission creep happens and and the, the the daily pressures come on and 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 then you you lose your mojo and you lose your mantra and it's it, you need some external uh, overview and you need some external oversight sorry and you need some external uh, um, validation and uh, external source of accountability to to keep you uh, within the sort of regulatory boundaries. So I actually tend to be old fashioned and believe that if done right, governments still would be the best to regulate, except that the way governments today regulate is all wrong. They regulate down to the last minute detail uh, and the regulation itself isn't able to evolve and to learn quickly enough so we have lots of very detailed, uh, outdated regulations around uh, that, on the one hand, stifle innovation where it is needed, including social innovation, and on the other hand, uh, does not regulate against what turns out to be the real ills of some of the technologies. You said, uh, and I'm quoting you, I don't believe in self-regulation. It seems as if one of the, the paradoxes, the interesting paradoxes of this open AI story is that by turning itself into a nonprofit, the founders, Sam Bank, uh, not Sam Bankman-Fried, that was a, a slip, uh, Sam, <laughs> Sam Altman and Elon Musk and others, they imagined that if they didn't own stock or they weren't paid or these were nonprofit companies, that that was a form of self-regulation. But the more I read and think about this, e even the idea of a nonprofit is for people like Altman and Musk was self-serving. It was a it was a tax loophole and maybe a, a kind of moral loophole. What do you make of the idea of the nonprofit and regulation in our tech in our in our digital economy? You know, I think that um, that having a particular governance structure you know being a nonprofit for example does not insulate you from some of those um challenges those regulatory challenges that you may face as an organization uh, in what kind of direction you should develop uh, your uh, ai uh, applications or your ai models uh, just because you are a nonprofit doesn't make you um necessarily uh, uh, a, a better organization or uh, a more ethical uh, outfit. Um, there are many uh, radical terrorist organizations around the world who would call themselves nonprofits. <laughs> and and right. we still uh, uh, don't think that they should be in their business. We are speaking with Victor Meyer Schoenberger. When you want to talk here, uh... Innovation and regulation, he's your guy. He's a professor of internet governance at Oxford University, but he's anything but an anti-tech guy. He's one of the most balanced thinkers around. He's the co-author of Big Data and many other influential books. Um, Victor, where are we today uh, in the AI economy? Some people believe we're on the brink of 
some sort of existential catastrophe. Others say we're we're barely even started. In, in, in trying to historicize the age of big data, where would you put us? You know, I feel so old that I remember the similar hype story about maybe 10 years ago or 12 years ago uh, with, with respect to big data, which by the way, isn't that much different from AI. Uh, the AI that we're talking about, the generative AI is data-driven uh, machine learning. Um, so it, it requires uh, huge amounts of data to learn from. Uh, and then uh, the, the resulting model can be very easily and uh, efficiently queried. Um, that, is, uh, th that, that is an idea that rests on the, 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 the notion that the data, the training data that we have holds the knowledge, holds the nuggets of wisdom uh, that we can then query and from which we can learn. Um, and there is some truth to it. Uh, ChatGPT is chatty, that's great. But ChatGPT is also relatively knowledgeable about many things and not necessarily factual things, but sort of how to, how to frame questions in part because it's been trained by Wikipedia and by the, the Digital Gutenberg um, Library. So it's trained by... Uh, millions and millions of pages uh, of, of, if you want, um, human insights and, and human knowledge. And so um, we shouldn't be surprised that th that actually provides a pretty good basis uh, of analysis. Um, but there is so much hype around this. And at the same time, there is so much fear. And it's all irrational because we humans tend to then take any technological development and extrapolate it to the extreme. You know, oh, if this only would be a hundred million times larger or a hundred million times better, what would it do? And these what if questions, these what if scenarios are fascinating for us, but, but that clouds or tends to cloud uh, our ability to think very pragmatically in the here and now what we can do with AI, what AI is currently not capable of doing. I've talked with, with many just yesterday with many people in the industry, and they have told me they all have their pilots, their AI pilots, but it's very hard for them to go beyond the pilots. Uh, and there is a reason for that. Uh, 10 years ago, we had lots of big data pilots, um, but it was hard to get beyond that. Why? Because you really need to ask them the question, what am I trying to achieve? What's the real value being generated? You talked about training data, which is very much bound up in your new book, Guardrails. Uh, you mentioned Wikipedia and that AI is getting its intelligence from Wikipedia and other online sources. My sense of that is it's the blind leading the blind since Wikipedia is a, a crowd-edited um, uh, encyclopedia, often slightly unreliable, and often it seems really just written by marketing people, often reflecting one hype or another. What about social media? Is some of the quote-unquote intelligence of AI, is it built on Facebook and X and LinkedIn and, um, uh, and, uh, uh, and all the other social media platforms? You know, it's really interesting that you bring this up, Andrew. Uh, because there have been accusations 
that some of the leading AI companies have been tapping into uh, the social media streams uh, without uh, uh, paying attention to, to privacy laws, uh, data protection laws, or even copyright laws. Um, and uh, to the extent that that is true, and it seems to be true at least in, in some uh, instances, that means that um, those AI companies are now facing um, a, a strong backlash. And that means they need to retrain their models and take some of that data that they, um, and they say inadvertently, but illegally used um, uh, out of their uh, training processes. If they do so, um, we'll, we'll have to take a, a, a careful look at the model that's evolving. Is it going to be worse uh, or is it going to be better? I think the jury is out whether social media and the sort of insights shared in social media uh, contribute some meaningful value uh, to generative AI models or not. Um, but it certainly means that many of those very large AI companies um, will have to, at great cost, redo some of the modeling that they have done. The jury is both in theory and practice, Victor, of course, out. Many lawsuits going on at the moment, many planned between the creative community and big tech, these AI companies, about whether or not the quote-unquote intelligence that these platforms, these algorithms have is actually theirs. And of course, that is the focus of the event in Barcelona that you and many others are participating in next week, uh, Creative Manifesto for a Critical AI Future. I'm going to talk about that more specifically after the break. Uh, but I want to also thank Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, which is edited and curated by humans, no algorithms involved here, an excellent new publication. Going to run a short video for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Victor Meyer Schoenberger to talk about this critical manifesto that we're developing in Barcelona to build a better internet, a fairer internet, a more human internet. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Victor Meyer Schoenberger, who's based uh, in Austria at the moment, but he's a professor of internet governance at Oxford University, prolific writer on big data and its implications uh, on the world. Uh, Victor, you're participating next week in our creative manifesto for a critical AI future um, in Barcelona. Should we have a manifesto? And if so, what kind to protect creativity? You use this term uh, in the first half of the show, we humans. I don't know quite what you mean by it, but I assume you include we creative humans and you maybe contrast creative humans with algorithms that don't know how to be creative. You know, the, the key here is to understand the limitations of artificial intelligence. Uh, and the limit, the fundamental limitation is that it is based on training data. 
uh, and training data reflects some kind of reality in the past. So whatever AI does is it always is tethered to and linked to the past. It tells us what the right decision was in the past. Now, if the world doesn't change, if our preferences don't change, if the context doesn't change, then knowing exactly what the best answer was yesterday and what the right thing was to do yesterday is still good today. But that's not what we experience. The truth is the world changes, the context changes, our preferences change, our views change. In fact, that means that we cannot look backward to answer forward questions, but we need to think forward for forward questions. And that's what the human mind does when it is creative. We imagine things. We dream with a purpose in order to imagine something that isn't there yet, but could. That's creativity. And then we, we make it happen. We write a song, paint the painting. We build a new technology. Whatever it is, uh, the creativity isn't just regurgitating what was already out there, but is really also contributing something new. That's what AI can do. And that is the key component, the key element of humanity's contribution to evolution. And that's what we need to protect. So a creative manifesto in the age of AI is crucial. Victor, are you suggesting then that if, if all AI can essentially do is regurgitate what we already know, both the utopians and dystopians are wrong, the utopians who believe that AI is going to somehow be able to think differently from humans, um, and the critics who believe we're in some sort of existential moment where the machines are about to take over, they're both wrong? Yes, I think that at this point in time, they're both wrong. Um, now, I, I can be mistaken, and maybe I, there is something that I don't see. But at this point, that's, that's the, 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 the lay of the land for me. And that means um, that, uh, we, uh, that both extreme camps are looking at the wrong issue. They're looking at the wrong problem. The, the real issue is, how do we ensure that AI has a constant stream of creative input that keeps it alive rather than makes it an ossified model of reality. And to do that, we need human creativity to be fed into the AI, which of course begs the question, who is going to pay for that? Because that means humans need to be creative to kind of help AI overcome its its um, it, it sort of it, its own limitation uh, of, uh, of of just being trained at, at, at data that already exists. What if we could just design new data and then use that synthetic data to train AI? Uh, then uh, the, the model would be different. We can do that, but it requires a creative human mind. And we need to incentivize, we need to create um, good reasons, motivation for people to do that, um, to uh, be creative in an AI age. Uh, and so we need different laws, different regulations, and maybe we need a different kind of economy to do that. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a, another San Francisco-based artist, Carla Ortiz, on the show. 
Um, she's been involved in a number of lawsuits. She's a quite a well-known graphic artist based in San Francisco. She's been taking some of the graphic AI platforms to court, believing that um, they are stealing her content in terms of these graphical interfaces. What do you make of these kind of cases? A similar one now is going on with writers and the courts and a number of nonfiction authors are su suing uh, both OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. Is this the right way, Victor, for the creative community, whether it's graphic artists or writers or song makers to go? Well, uh, I think it is useful because it because it really alerts the AI community to the fact that creative input is crucial for their AI models, for the training of their AI models. And so they're basically standing on the shoulders of creative giants. And those creative giants actually need to eat and live. And, uh, and open AI's huge valuation and tens of billions of dollars uh, is, is wonderful for Sam Altman, but it is derived in no small part from the creative inputs of... Although I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Sam Altman, and I'm perhaps not his greatest fan, but he might respond, well, I never had any stock in OpenAI, and I probably still won't. So it doesn't benefit him having an $80 billion valuation. Well, uh, not directly, but uh, but there still is a company, an entity called OpenAI, whether it's profit or non-profit, that has that valuation. Um, and it, uh, that means um, how is it that uh, the creative community is not getting anything and uh, uh, OpenAI is the, is the winner? It reminds me of the old, old Napster days. Yeah. Uh, where, where Napster had all of the valuation and the, the musical geniuses, the creators, didn't. I am not suggesting that we should push back uh, and, and sort of um, teleport us back to the, to the 1990s or anything like that. I, I don't want to turn back the wheel of time, but I do think that we need a new kind of social contract. Going back to Napster is, is one way of doing it. But of course, Napster was sued successfully and it shut down. What about going back to Google? Google successfully downloaded the entire internet and built now, I think it's a $2 trillion business around its search, is in some ways what these open AI platforms are doing, similar to what Google did in the early years of the internet, or certainly the early years of Web 2.0. Um, to, to an extent it is, but the, the, the slight difference is, or perhaps the, the crucial difference, that uh, the, all these websites um, did benefit from the fact that they were indexed by Google. Um, the musicians did not benefit from Napster sucking up all the, 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 the music content and making, free, making it freely available. So there is a slight difference there because there is there are positive economic externalities for websites to be easily findable uh, through Google search. The real question is therefore not whether we should uh, prohibit Google from doing that, but whether all the money that Google makes is should go to Google itself or some part of it should actually go in some form or fashion 
to uh, the, 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 the websites uh, of the global internet and the creators of it uh, as a sign that they actually contributed the content uh, that makes Google uh, such a powerful and useful engine. The effective altruists might say, and I'm speaking on their behalf, I'm not sure whether I have the right to do that, but I will anyway, they might respond to someone like Carla Ortiz and say, look, Carla, you may not get the financial ramifications. Sure, we borrowed some of your creativity, but we're creating a platform for humanity. And now everyone can benefit from your creativity. How would you respond to that? Uh, that that's perfectly fine if you are a, a an organization that not only is nonprofit but anything in terms of valuation or profits you make you will then channel back um, uh, into uh, the, the the creative minds uh, on on whose shoulders you stand. Um, we we see that happening. Uh, there are um, copyright clearance uh, organizations. Uh, uh, were uh, authors uh, are members of, uh, and then the money that they make is then distributed back to the uh, to the creative industry to the creators. Um, but we don't have that in place. Uh, the, the the truth is we don't have a a, a, a truly altruistic organization. And then the question is, how would we set this up? It's not sufficient. To just go and do a um, non and California nonprofit uh, and 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 think that th that's going to succeed, then you need to not only have certain nonprofit governance, but you also need to have some kind of rebalancing uh, mechanism where the monies that come in or are promised eventually will be channeled back into the creative community. Um, and we need some conversation about that. Uh, I, I don't pretend to have a silver bullet, um, but we need to have a conversation about that. Uh, and uh, sooner rather than later, because uh, in 20 years ago, it was just humans um, stealing intellectual property from other humans. But now we have AI stealing uh, the creative uh, insights of humans uh, en masse. Um, we need to think about what the right balance here is uh, and who should eventually profit. Well, that's what exactly what we're going to be doing next Friday in Barcelona for Creative Manifesto for a Critical AI Future at uh, the Santa Monica Center. We're going to be having a conversation and Another of our participants is Stephen Marsh, who I think is a little bit more optimistic, uh, Victor, than yourself on why technologies like ChatGPT will make creators more valuable than ever. Marsh, as I know you know, is a, is a well-known Canadian nonfiction and fiction writer. He's been playing with ChatGPT, and he thinks it actually strengthens his hand as a writer. He's even got a new detective novel out, which he wrote with uh, AI. Is that the answer? Is Marsh right that creators, whether they're musicians or graphic artists like Carla Ortiz or writers like Stephen Marsh, they simply need to roll up their sleeves and understand that they have new technology that will help them be creative and not worry about all the complicated legal implications of all this? Maybe, and maybe in the long run. I, I just talked to a, a, um, a CFO, a, a chief financial officer, 
uh, of a large corporation yesterday, and they said that they were using AI or were trying to use AI to write uh, annual reports and, and, and quarterly reports. Uh, uh, they'll spice it up, maybe keep people awake when they read. And them. then, and then they, they looked at it and they said, it's all fine. It, it reads just fine, but there is no sparkle in it. There is no, there's no tension. There's no story. There's no narrative in it. Uh, and perhaps that's the human dimension that Marsh is talking about. Uh, and perhaps there is a good symbiotic relationship that we could imagine uh, between generative AI and uh, humans with the human sparkle uh, working together. Uh, and that's perfectly possible in the long run. But as economists say, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, and so uh, we need to also think about the short and the medium term uh, and what are we doing now um, in, in, in order to not... Uh, let this become uh, uh, the Wild West, um, but 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 really think creatively uh, about what the sort of rules, the structures, the guardrails, uh, if you want, are uh, for the how humans and NAI work together. Um, I, I, again, there is no silver bullet, but if we don't have the conversation now, then we are just assuming that whatever we already have in place is sufficient. I don't believe that's the case. Well, we're having the conversation, uh, Victor, you and I now, uh, and we will have it again on, on Friday in, in Barcelona. I'm excited about that. Um, you talk about in the long run, we're all dead. In the short and medium term, it seems the creative community is also dead. It's harder and harder to, to make a living. What kind of reforms would you like to see in the short to medium term? to allow writers and musicians and graphic artists like Carla Ortiz to survive as we begin to figure out the future? Because as you suggested in terms of your, your story about the railways, it's, it's impossible to know what the future is. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things is that um, a study some years ago showed that um, about 97% of the revenues for intellectual uh, property, um, you know, for, for sort of copyrighted material, whether it's CDs or whether it's books, 97% of it do not go to the creators. And that's astonishing. So we are basically paying 97% to the machinery so that 3% go to the creators. Um, if we change that from 97 to 94%, we have doubled the amount that the creators get. And especially we should look not just at the, the, the real, you know, big earners uh, uh, at, the, at the far end of the scale, but we should look at how to incentivize uh, a broad cultural production, a, a broad set of creators, because we need that kind of diverse creativity throughout the world, um, uh, rather than just having uh, top 10 songs, we need the bottom 10 or million songs. Uh, and how do we incentivize and enable those? Um, I think that's a question about how to reform uh, uh, copyright and intellectual property regime that's been with us, but uh, the... the uh, Breathless technological advancements over the last 20 years have kind of pushed that question to the background. I think we need to revive that question. Does that require ultimately opening 
the AI black box, actually understanding what this training data is. Because if indeed Carla Ortiz's art is being put into OpenAI or one of these other platforms, she should know and she should be rewarded. Yes. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that we need to know the exact element of the model. Um, but does she need to get compensated in some form? I think so. Uh, and the real question is then, how can we make this happen so that it has low transactional costs? We don't want to spend 97% to get 3% to the creators. So how can we lower the transaction cost um, and, and make sure that a lot of creators benefit? And finally, Victor, you've talked about we humans. You did an interesting uh, video with my old friend Maria Franzoni from the London Speaker Bureau. I think we have similar agents on that front on humanity's hidden superpower in the age of data. What is our hidden superpower, we being humanity, and how can this help us make a, a better AI future? Well, our superpower is that we can imagine, we can dream with a particular purpose in mind. Uh, we, we, we are currently not doing that enough. If we are faced with a decision, we may ask GPT to tell us what the right choice is between two choices. But that I kind of is the wrong approach. I think the right approach is to use GPT and then our creativity to come up with more choices rather than to stick to the conventional choices we already have. Uh, that's a superpower that we are underutilizing we should do it more often. Well, that superpower is going to be on display next Friday, uh, December the 1st, at the Santa Monica Center in uh, in Barcelona. I hope to see many of you there, including Victor uh, Maya Schoenberger. Victor, thanks so much. See you next week in Barcelona. Thank you. Thank you.